0: Good morning. And for those that are joining us online, good morning as well. And uh, what I'd like to do now is to take our Bibles, and we're going to be once again turning to Zechariah, which the easiest way I suppose to uh, find is by starting with Matthew in the, in the Gospel account and then uh, moving backwards a few, a few pages until you get to Zechariah. And what we're doing now is we're examining in particular uh, passages pertaining to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we're gonna be examining that. And then when we pray, we'll be praying, especially for all the youth, large number of youth away this weekend from this congregation, this particular uh, service time period uh, at the district conference as well. Now, what I'd like to do is to Uh, pick up with verse one, even though we covered verses one through five last week. and a little different approach, I'm going to provide a a sort of running commentary on the first five verses so that we've got our bearings. We've got a context to work with, an understanding of how verses six to nine build off of verses one uh, through five. So now, as I begin in chapter 12, I'll I'll read verse 1, pause and comment, and so on, until we get to verse 6, which will be where we will be focusing upon today. You'll notice in verse 1, chapter 12, that reads, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Now, as we noted, the word oracle is a word that carries with it a heavy burden. And this word is used twice in the book of Zechariah. In chapter nine, verse one, the same approach is used. It's it's the oracle of the word of the Lord, or burden. It carries with it, then, the idea of a heavy weight that has been placed upon Zechariah's mind and heart. In Zechariah nine through 11, this burden pertained to the first coming of Jesus Christ. He viewed this as something extraordinarily weighty that he needed to be able to communicate effectively. Now, in Zechariah 12 through 14, you and I are introduced to the second burden that is placed upon Zechariah's mind and heart. Equally weighty, the first burden deals with the first coming. The second burden, found in chapter 12, verse one, pertains to the second coming. The oracle, the burden, literally, of the word of the Lord. Lord in the Hebrew, Yahweh, the covenantal relational name for our God concerning Israel. It doesn't say concerning the US or England and so on. In other words, He wants us to be able to narrow our focus upon what is going to take place in the future that will have global ramifications. Thus declares the Lord. And then what we noted was that in order to understand something futuristically, it's very important that you go back and you analyze this thing historically. What does he do? He takes us right back to the creational account. And so he uses three significant phrases to be able to say, in essence, if God could create something out of nothing, he can create something good out of something bad, even with the rise of hostilities and tensions in the world today, he's in essence saying, look back before you look forward. And as you look back, what does it say? He's the one who stretched out the heavens, founded the earth, formed the spirit of man within him. Once you've seized that phraseology, and then you grasp the behold, he's got a visual word here to grip your attention, behold. Now look at the epicenter, it's Jerusalem. I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. The word cup here in Hebrew carries with the idea of a very wide container, a bowl, if you will. And he's saying that all the surrounding nations and all the enemies of Israel are going to be sipping from this bowl. And the effect upon them is that it's gonna leave them in a drunken state. They're staggering. And to put it another way, then, they are losing their sense of perspective, losing their balance, losing their equilibrium. They become extremely boastful, but they're able to shout much but do little because the siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah and not notice. 17 times in Zechariah, he utilizes this phrase, on that day, speaking of a future day. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the people, speaking globally now. This will have global implications. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. And so if you are watching the geopolitical climate right now, and you are noting whether it be in Denmark, uh, my heritage comes out of a combination of Scandinavian countries and Germany, whether there is anti-Semitism arising in their governmental systems, all in the United States, governmental system, and Congress, various voices, and so on. Watch for a rising anti-Semitism in that final day, he's saying. It will intensify, it will escalate, until through political decision-making processes, all the nations of the earth will gather against it. Now, on that day, see how it's repeated? declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. This is a historic descriptive. What he in essence is saying is that the military machinery that is used to transport soldiers and equipment toward the Middle East will be immediately impacted by God's sovereign involvement. I will strike every horse with panic, its rider with madness. But, notice the contrast. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. He will have a discerning, a distinguishing eye when I strike every horse of the people with blindness. And then the clans of Judah will say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. And the phrase Lord of hosts has to do with a military commander. He is sovereign over the armed forces. In other words, the entire cosmic realm, the angelic realm is his. The Lord of hosts, their God, he is Adonai. Now that is a summary of what we covered last week. And now, I'll simply read what we're going to be examining in the moments to come today. On that day, I'll make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right to the left, all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall be habited in its place, in Jerusalem, and the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah on that day. The Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And the word seek in the Hebrew carries with the idea to narrow one's focus and to take aim. And so this is what we are now examining as we pick up where we left off and try to understand the global implications and how this fits in, not only into the present, but into the future as we look to the Lord now in prayer. Father, for those watching online because of perhaps inclement weather, maybe some watching from another state, we know that occurs weekly, or states, which is our regular experience as well, minister to them in their own settings. So, Father, we're also asking simultaneously for all the youth that are away at district conference that you will bring them back safely a little later on, hours to come from Green Bay, and asking that the Holy Spirit has really been poured out upon them, meeting them at their point of need. We pray, Father, for those that in first service, and now this, that are processing how past, present, point in the direction of the future. That what you've done is created a trajectory and you've allowed, in essence, all the global tensions of today to prepare us for the ultimate matters still to come in the tomorrows of life. So, Father, we're thanking you now thanking you for who you are, thanking you for what you've done. And even in less than ideal weather conditions, what we're asking is that we look to the ideal one, Jesus Christ, who reigns over all in the moments to come. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these woes. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only And we're praying these things again now in in Jesus' name. Amen. Now when you see the phrase, in that day, or on that day, depending upon the version that you're using, we're using the English standard version in our worship services. It points, of course, to the day of the Lord. During World War II, D-Day was being planned. White Eisenhower was in the midst and the thick of all as they were determining the timing of it. But the troops were unaware of the timing. When American army forces were were poised in England for the invasion of Europe, the big question of the hour then was simply this, when is this the day? We're told that the date, though, was kept secret. And there was a code that was used among the inner circle of decision-makers during World War II, where they would be on the same page as to when that whole matter of that day arrived. And the code went out, it's known today as D-Day. Likewise, the prophets of the Older Testament did not know the date of the day of the Lord by which they wrote, so they simply referred to the time period as on that day or in that day. So as we noted, 17 times this phrase is utilized, and what Zechariah is now doing is he is prepping his readership with not one, but two burdens, The first burden pertained to the first coming of Jesus Christ, which he develops in chapters 9 through 11. The second burden, or the second oracle, is chapter 12 through 14 and pertains to the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're focused upon 12 through 14 in this middle series, and we're examining carefully the second coming of Christ, building off now of what was covered last week And as I am now with you, extracting more from these verses, what I wanna do this morning is to draw out two significant circumstances, that's our key word, circumstances, that will help us to better understand what it is that God is about to do. The first flows out of verse six. I'm gonna phrase it like this. As you and I as we together, we consider the circumstances associated with what we're calling on that day here in verse six i want to note with you what i'm calling the sudden reversal of events being described here the sudden reversal of events being described so we're going to pick it up now in verse in verse six and notice how this begins to unfold on that day Notice now, it does not say Israel will make itself, but rather what God is now saying is, I will make. He is directly involved in this matter. It is his intervention that's being emphasized at the forefront of this. It is his intent. I will make the clans of Judah who are who are surrounded at this point by anti-Semitic forces. What I want you to see next is the word like, L-I-K-E. It appears twice. The first time, the phrase is this. It is like a blazing pot in the midst of wood. He's lacking sufficient wording, so he's gonna use the simile like. Now what God is doing at this point is this. With this imagery, he takes this idea of the blazing pot, and what he is now doing is he is allowing for for tensions to escalate, to intensify, to a point where it seems as though we are in a geopolitically overheated situation. Simultaneously with the picture of the blazing pot and overheated description, he he positions this in the midst of wood. But what captures my attention is that the word for wood here has to do with dry timber. In other words, God has so timed the second coming that he is allowing for all of this to escalate to the point where we have a combustible context that we are examining here. And so you are now looking at everything unfolding in the Middle East, and you're watching the rise of anti-Semitism, and you might have thought that that all subsided at the end of World War II, but that was just simply a fact that things went to more of a dormant state. now, what we're finding is the rise of anti-Semitism near and far is such that the blazing pot whereby the heat is so intensifying simultaneously is being introduced to the dry timber creating what I'll call a combustible situation. Now, with that imagery before us, he uses a second form of imagery, a second word like like a flaming torch among sheaves. You pull that together then, and what you see then is that we are in a situation where it's being described where something is about to ignite, but not merely ignite, but it looks like it's going to consume. Intensively, extensively. How are we going to then understand what God is doing here? Read on a little bit further. And they shall devour the right, to the right and to the left, all the surrounding peoples. Who is going to be the one to devour? The answer is this, this remnant of the Jewish population, that is found here in the the center of Israel at this point. Now, it looks like everything is going wrong, and every pundit who is analyzing world events on the newscast is trying to understand what's happening, and it looks like everything is going against Israel. But what we see here is that what God is about to do is to create what I'm calling a sudden reversal. In Writer's Digest, the columnist Nancy Cress explains how to use character and plot reversals to introduce what she calls surprising twists for the budding writer. In the story you're composing. And the idea is to challenge the reader's expectations as to what the conclusion will look like. I see this as fitting in to what's being described here. Well, Dr. Kress says, quote, You want readers to suddenly take, be taken in a direction they had not anticipated. In fact, the writer must do this. The alternative is a story that can be predicted in its entirety after reading the first page. Now, while the secularist and the religionist who doesn't know Christ as Lord and Savior thinks that things will just continuously, continuously reach a point, no return, everything is going wrong, what God is now doing is that he creates the sudden reversal which is introduced with the second coming of Jesus Christ, everything is turned around. And the ones that look defeated are the ones who, in fact, will be victorious. And the ones who you assume will be victorious are the ones who will be defeated. This is the sudden reversal that the second coming of Jesus Christ brings. But God specializes in sudden reversals because in the first coming of jesus christ it looked like the sanhedrin it looked like the roman soldiers had the upper hand where those opposed to jesus christ had him placed upon their cross dying upon that cross but then lo and behold three days later what you and i see is the sudden reversal whereby god intervenes he raises Jesus Christ from the grave this is the burden placed upon Zechariah in in the prior chapters 9 through 11 but now with the second burden of chapter 12 through 14 where he's saying once again it seems as though in the mindset in the eyes set of people who are observing who are trying to understand things this is what the outcome will be and then once again God breaks in and the sudden reversal takes place all of which is simply to bring glory to God and the situation is such that the opponents to Israel are placed in a self-defeating context. Now, right now things look difficult. For example, when you and I read or hear these words, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And this is a chant that's heard on college campuses in certain settings, out on the streets of large settings such as New York and so on. It's a reference to all of Israel's land, which is from the Jordan River, which is Israel's eastern border, to the Mediterranean Sea, which is Israel's western border. All of this then, implicit in their call for Palestine to be free, is their desire to see the land purged of, of the Jewish population. Now, there's nothing new to this, because when you and I go back in our scriptures, we can see, for example, that in the time of Exodus, What Pharaoh had determined was that the baby boys would be put to death. Fast forward to the days of the Persian Empire, and there was a man named Haman. He was in the land of what is now modern day Iran. And he had determined that there was to be the annihilation of the Jewish population. But there was a woman named Esther, who, according to the Scriptures, was raised for such a time as this. And there is what I would describe as a sudden reversal of all his plans and expectations pertaining to the Jewish population. You get to the New Testament, and you will find that Herod is having the baby boys put to death, feeling threatened by this incoming king of the Jews. But what God does is that he brings unexpectedly Gentiles, wise men from the east. They are being directed to the manger. And so now you have the Gentiles through the wise men, but the shepherds who are Jews, Jew and Gentile alike, affirming the fact that this one is the promised one. And God sets in motion his strategy to bring Jesus Christ to the cross. When you and I examine history, what we find is that the evil one attempts to use successive Gentile world powers to either, number one, annihilate the Jews, or else, number two, assimilate the Jews to keep all of this from unfolding. Now, look carefully. On that day, I'll make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. So maybe we need to take a look at Jerusalem for a minute. Join with me as we're taking a tour and as we make our way into, into the heart of it all, maybe late in the week on our tour, we're going to pause and sit down in in what is known as the Tower of David. It's the evening hours, and what might appear upon the wall uh, where you've got um, maybe a couple hundred people there out on in the courtyard, we begin to watch an unfolding visual Uh, Timeline of the events generation by generation of the attempts to annihilate the Jews and how all this has been overcome thus far in history. You are sitting in a tower, a fortress, a citadel, which is meant to protect. But when you're sitting there, what you are saying to yourself is that there is one greater than this citadel who is capable of protecting and providing and securing his sovereign plan to make certain that all things will eventually be achieved. And that, of course, is God, our sovereign one, who sends Jesus Christ into this world to die for our sins. But again and again, as this visual is being offered, what strikes me is that this sequence line, this timeline, does not speak of B.C. and A.D., which, of course, deals with before Christ and after death, but rather be C.E., before the common era, and C.E., the common era, in that context, at this point, they do not have Christ at the center of, of their whole approach to being secure in God's sovereign plan. But though they may not be faithful to God, God is faithful to his plan, and will see this through. He produces the great reversal just as he did at the cross of Jesus Christ three days later, raising Christ from the grave. Therefore, as you and I consider the circumstances associated with that day, you note the sudden reversal of events being described and you ponder the fact that God promised the Jews that land. It began, of course, the promise of Abraham and generation by generation And century by century, you watch how all this unfolds. While all other people groups are no longer on the map, here, in fact, is Israel, and they have regained statehood in 1948. And you're awed with the fact that God does sudden reversals. Now, if God can do a sudden reversal globally, God can do a sudden reversal in the heart of that that child of yours that you're praying for, that you're burdened for, for those groups of people that you might work with, those students that you are with who do not know Christ yet as Lord and Savior, I always use the word yet because I expect a sudden reversal where certain circumstances are such where it seems as though all of a sudden we have a combustible state where they say, I've got to reconsider what I know about God. And they re-examine Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. And that's our prayer. And so you look at the citadel. You look, if you will, at the Tower of David, and you realize there's something greater than the Tower of David, and that's the God of David who secures. Now, that's your verse 6. But what about verses 7 through 9? Here is the second of the circumstances. That you and I are together, we consider the circumstances associated with that day, on that day. Note further, the protective shield of salvation being provided. In verse seven now, you and I are informed, and the Lord will give salvation. Notice that it is capital L-O-R-D. It means then we're talking about the covenantal relational name for God and he wants a relationship with you when you put your faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. And the Lord will give salvation, in this case the idea of deliverance, to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. Now, when you and I examine very carefully this idea of glory, what immediately seizes our attention here is that the word means heavy, which means you don't take God lightly. He will use the sudden reversal and then provide simultaneously a protective shield so that his people then are secure came across this story, it's from World War I. The year was 1918, where a small hull steamer named the Flixton was making its way up the English Channel. And the lookout man spied a white line darting toward the ship, knew it. It was a torpedo from a German submarine, which at that very moment was surfacing. It was going to bring disaster. The lookout gave a shout. Everyone ran to the side of the ship. It looked hopeless. Too late to turn the vessel, so they thought. In no a matter of seconds, they'd be blown to bits. But then a strange thing happened. Within yards of its target, <coughs> something went wrong with the torpedo mechanism. It reared its nose above the water abruptly turned its course, shot straight back on the path it had traveled, and the British seamen, stunned, watched as the tornado excuse me, torpedo slammed the German sub. And one doubts that the German crew had any idea that the havoc they had unleashed would ravage them. This is an illustration of what you and I are examining right here. As all the forces now converge on Jerusalem, they are creating havoc for themselves. The sudden reversal simultaneously with the protective shield secures the people from what is being described. You don't take the heavy weight of God's glory lightly. You're up to verse eight. On that day, God says, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The word protect carries with the idea of a protective shield. That's why we, where we get our second circumstance. On that day, the Lord protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And you wonder, why David? You might remember that by all appearances, if anybody should have gone into battle to fight Goliath, it should have been Saul. He had the armor. He had the protective shield. He looked secure. He had the size, he had the might, he had the esteem. David, on the other hand, young, inexperienced, all he's got basically is a slingshot and some stones. But what he is saying here through this imagery is, Don't despise small beginnings. Don't despise limited appearance. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. The Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them, And then you examine, if you will, and you begin to ponder what God is doing. If the evil one could not stop the first coming from occurring, then he'll go out of his way to stop the second coming from occurring, such as the Holocaust during World War II. But what did God do in a sudden reversal? 1948, he raises up Israel and gives them statehood. Never before, since 70 AD. This was not to be predicted, not to be anticipated, unless you study the scriptures. God has a way of doing such. Then you look ahead and you allow the past to guide you into the future. You know, from 80 70 until the war in 1967 for Israel. The land of Palestine was ruled by 40 different nations. Today it's under Israeli control. Who'd have thought in the midst of the Holocaust that would occur? And furthermore, from 1948 to the present, the Israelis have fought five national wars, winning all five, preparing their way, you see, for the land to be such, for Jesus Christ to return. Because we're going to see in coming weeks, the promise was that he would return on the Mount of Olives. But Israel has got to have possession of the Mount of Olives for Jesus Christ to return. Which means then they needed statehood. See how everything is being set up and how all this points forward in the direction that God intends for these things to go? You pull that together. And then you go to verse nine. And in verse nine, you and I are told, on that day, God says, I will seek. The Hebrew word carries with the idea to take aim with distinctive focus to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And with that image, you go now with me back to Israel and let's take a cable upward, 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 into the, onto the top of Masada, which now appears here. Because generally speaking, when one goes on a tour of Israel, uh, somewhere along the way, one of the highlights of the tour, usually late in the tour, is that your group gathers together, you get on in this cart, and you go up, 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 until you reach the top. And there at the top, you're walking around, you're pondering how a group of Jews tried to fend off the entire hostile armies of the Roman Empire and how they were determined to secure their Judaism in the midst of it all. To this day, the Jewish military view Masada as their rallying point and make yearly oaths to one another that they will defend Israel with the picture of the story of Masada fresh in their minds. What God is saying, there is one who offers greater security than Masada. On that day, he says, I'll seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. It will not be by the military force, by the strategies that Israel is demonstrating in Gaza and elsewhere. It is by God and God alone because he's the promise keeper. He promised the land. And the reason for that land being so important is that that will be the place where Jesus returns and everything is settled for his honor and his glory. And that's what you've extracted this morning out of verses 6 through 9. Let's stand together. For those watching online, we pray that this ministers to needs. For the students returning shortly from Green Bay, I pray the Holy Spirit has been poured upon them and they sense you're at work within their hearts. May they come back with renewed vigor for each of these services today in less than ideal weather conditions over this weekend. We're giving you praise, we're giving you honor, we're giving glory. You're the sovereign one. You sent Jesus Christ into this world to create the great reversal. You raised him from the grave, physically. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus' Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit's at work, and our great reversals occurred spiritually, we give you all praise. And so with our eyes wide open, as we examine how the past the present points us into the future may we take the verses and the principles found here now apply them to what's at hand right now globally and be better equipped to develop on ramps to be able to carry on conversations with those maybe family members that might not be interpreting things accurately and point them in the direction of Jesus Christ because it's all about you we will give all praise and all glory to Jesus. And we praise him in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.